Hello, everyone, and welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host today. My introduction today will be different than what I normally do, and it's in regards to a couple of events that have happened recently in my family. On Monday, um, that would be January 23rd, my dad called me, and I was just getting ready to record this. Um, I was checking my messages on my phone before I turned it to silent, and he called in, and he told me that my brother had been stopped for a school bus. You know, he was driving, and, you know, you're supposed to stop for a school bus, and he was, but the person coming up behind him didn't stop. And while it's still under investigation, the, the accident took my brother's life. So, you know, I think most of the family went through you know, some of those stages they talk about. Like, I just knew that there was a mistake, that he was, you know, at the hospital. And we just got the wrong information, but he was fine or injured, but going to be fine. And when the phone rang a few minutes later, and I even forget who it was that was calling, I, when I saw their name, I just said, okay, they're calling to tell me it was a mistake, but it wasn't. So as a family, we're trying to work through the feelings. The, the one for me, to be honest, is anger. He, my brother had quadruple bypass last month, and we didn't get to spend Christmas with him because he was still kind of, um, you know, I don't want to use the term fragile, but I mean, he just had it, not the direct Friday before Christmas, but the Friday before. And so, you know, since most of us are out and about, we may have colds or, you know, other types of illnesses. We didn't really want to, you know, go around him and possibly give him those illnesses. And my son had been coughing a lot. Um, so I did get to talk to him, but, you know, I had not seen him. And it's one of the rare holidays where I didn't get to see him or, and my sister-in-law. So um, it's been a little rough. I've tried to sit down and record this a few times and it didn't go that well. Um, but I do want to let you know that it will probably be three weeks between this episode and the next, um, as his services are upcoming, um, this week. And, you know, it's, I'm going to speak at his funeral on behalf of my siblings. I have, um, I, I had a total of nine siblings. So 10, including myself and one passed away some years ago. Um, so I'm <clears throat> sorry, I'm going to be speaking on behalf of the siblings. And so it's going to be pretty difficult for me to get through even just writing that. And as I was starting to record this last night and I was, again, I, well, I forgot to turn off the volume on my phone and I was getting to the end of a section and it rang and, you know, I just thought, oh, well, you know, I'm going to turn it to silent once I'm off the phone with my sister. And she was calling to 
tell me that her husband, who is a first responder, he's with the local volunteer fire department, was attending a scene last night and was hit by a truck. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of fear. Um, now, I misunderstood what she was saying. You know, when she called me, of course, she was upset. Um, somebody who lives down the road from her is a former fire chief. So he and his wife actually came and got her to take her to the hospital. So she didn't have to worry about driving. And, you know, when the way she was, or I took it when she explained it, was that my brother-in-law had been in his truck. So, you know, it would have been a strong hit anyway. But once things were settled, yeah, they actually discharged him. She, you know, called me back. I told her it doesn't matter what time, call me back. You know, I'll be up in case you need a ride home. Um, but she let me know there were no internal injuries. He would be extremely sore, of course. Um, now, this is just what I've been told at this point in time. So to protect myself legally and also morally as far as retelling the story is what she had been told by at that point is someone, you know, somehow again did not see the lights and hit him driving their pickup at around 50 miles per hour. So I don't know if that's an accurate um, miles per hour because that's pretty fast to be hit and not sustain serious injury, or it could just be a blessing and he, he didn't, um, or it could be too, you know, when things happen like that, your, your perception of time, um, you know, distance, things like that can be swayed a little bit. So that's just what we had heard last night, but I'm sure that accident is ongoing with the investigation as well as the one from my brother, even though we know the basics of what happened, it's still looking at the why. We know that someone didn't stop for a school bus for whatever reason. Um, so just please, if you see flashing lights, traffic lights, anybody in reflective gear, construction zone, first responders, anything like that, please slow down. Please make sure that you're outside of any range where you may hit somebody because my brother-in-law, he's been married you know, to my sister and dating her for about 40 years. And this past week on Wednesday, his brother passed away. So he had um, two brothers and a sister and previously a brother and sister passed away and you now his remaining brother passed away and he and his son were actually on the way to see um, this brother, you know, my nephew's uncle, at a larger hospital when my brother um, was in the car accident. So it's been a bit of a week, um, to say the least. You know, just looking at it, I... And you told my sister, I'm like, what are the odds that, you know, from her perspective, that she would lose a brother and a brother-in-law in two separate accidents within two days of each other. And then to have this to happen on top of it, 
after all of that, you know, my sister's strong. I call her the rock of the family, but, you know, after all this, it's just for the families as a whole, it's been very rough. And, you know, I'm definitely thinking of my sister as she's, it's just one after the other. Now, with my brother, you know, um, I think all little girls kind of think of their brother as superheroes or invincible. So, um, you know, I... I kept thinking about that and just looking up to all of my big brothers as I'm the youngest. And I've come to realize, even though, you know, as a kid, I would think of invincible or immortal or, you know, just that he'd never be gone. I've come to realize that he won't. When I look at his kids and his grandkids and even now his great grandkids, the influence and examples that he set for you know, my sons and for all the kids in the family. Unfortunately, though, um, you know, like I said, he had quadruple bypass recently and he didn't have life insurance due to issues, you know, revolving the expense of the life insurance. And I know things are still ongoing for, you know, the actual car insurance and investigations, but the funeral, the costs just, I mean, it's about $4,000 higher than the service that um, was charged for my mother only um, five years ago, or quoted for my mother. We ended up having to go through um, cremation because, you know, a burial was too expensive. So my sister-in-law lost the man that she's been married to forever. He's 23 years older than I am, you know, so, you know, they've been together forever and she's lost her best friend. But more than that, you know, they're both, they were both over 65, they're retired and she's lost that second income. So in order to try to support, at least to get through these funeral expenses, I am going to link a GoFundMe um, along with the obituary as well, in case you want to read a little bit about my brother. Um, I usually mention having a PayPal account or a buy me a coffee to help offset costs of the podcast, but I won't be doing that um, at least for the next few weeks because she's going to need all the support that she can get overall. Um, but first and foremost, just making it through the service. So, you know, if anyone could just even think about it or share it, I would greatly appreciate it. Now, to get back to the story um, that I'll be covering today, just to go over some of my normal disclaimers, you know, this episode will include discussions of topics that some may find hard to listen to, and in today's case, we'll have discussions of violence and domestic violence. So that's just for everyone to know. And there will be also a death involved. All of my sources will be linked in the description of the episode, though there were some discrepancies in a few of the articles that I've read. 
So knowing that this was also featured on oxygen channels buried in the backyard, I was able to find a transcript of that just so I could see everything in writing um, as well as listen to it at the same time. And since that show had an interview with her mother, I am taking some of the facts that there were inconsistencies on and you know, kind of deferring to her mother on that one as she would know best. So with all of that being said, let's get into the case of Christine Shetty. People walk around laughing and talking, enjoying the scenery and the comfort of staying at a quaint bed and breakfast. They spend the day at the beach or they go to the outlets in the state next to them in Delaware and capitalize on the tax-free shopping, or they take in some of the local seafood restaurants at the beach, or walk along the bead, bead, walk along the boardwalk, I'm sorry. Some may come to watch a loved one graduate from a local university, and rather than stay at a large cookie-cutter faceless hotel, they stay at a comfortable and welcoming inn. And at this end, they may have stood talking or having fun in the backyard, but close to where they talked and celebrated, a secret that some had wished would never come to light would soon be unearthed. That secret caused innumerable people pain, uncertainty, fear, and anger. But those responsible were too selfish to think of anybody but themselves. And when that secret was finally revealed, it brought forth a floodgate of deception and selfishness that today remains part of the case of Christine Shetty. Now, a parent never truly stops worrying about their child. And just reading this part that I wrote two weeks ago, it's true. My dad is, you know, he's having trouble, of course, um, but he never stops worrying about us and, you know, always tries to keep in contact with us to make sure we're safe. He doesn't matter how old we are. He considers that his job, but truly a parent never stops worrying, even if their child's an adult, even, you know, in their sixties, a parent will always worry. We sometimes see this in missing persons cases as it's usually a parent or parental figure that reports someone missing. But in November of 2007, Christine Shetty's mother was put in a situation where she was not the one who reported her daughter missing, but rather she got a phone call from some of her daughter's friends saying that Christine could not be found. So to understand a little bit about the dynamic between Christine and her mother and what was going on in Christine's life at the time, we're going to start taking a look back over the last few years of Christine's life. There comes a time with every child that they become an adult and they want to spread their wings and, you know, find their own paths in life. And while a parent may always want to you know, keep their wing over their child and protect them, sometimes 
you have to let them fly. And doing so may not be easy, but in some cases it helps that child learn and understand how to navigate certain nuances and events in life. As Christine was going through a kind of transitional moment in her life, she had shortly stayed with her mother, but sometimes, especially with mothers and daughters of a certain age, there can be some clashes that occur between the two. Lynn Dodenoff was Christine's mother. And at the beginning of November 2007, her life began to revolve around one thing, finding her daughter. And if things worked out to be a worst case scenario, making sure that those who were responsible served justice. And at times it may have felt like that would never come, but as we've come to see, sometimes the wheels of justice turn slowly. But with advances in technology nowadays, we are able to come up with information that we never had in years past. Sometimes it does take time itself to start to move an investigation along. And I think you'll all agree with me that that is what actually happened in this case. Christine was born in 1980 in Dover, Delaware. She was described as someone who always wanted to help others and was very kind. She was described as being an old soul, rambunctious, comical, funny, and having a, a giving spirit. Christine's first love was a man named James, even though when they met, they were still kids in high school. James, whose nickname was Jimbo, and Christine were similar. They loved to laugh together, and Jim was also described as being comical. Like many first loves, the two revolved around each other. Then one day, the easy and carefree life of young adults came to a quick and sobering halt when Jim was hurt at a job, breaking both of his ankles. So while this would have been horrible enough, it was through the taking of x-rays that doctors found a spot on one of his bones. He had a cancer, a rare form of cancer, and that had already started to ravage him. And after three years of fighting this battle, he passed away. For about a year, Christine felt like she was just kind of there. It was almost like she was in a limbo. Um, she couldn't feel the same without having the love of her life by her side. And in what at least I'm thinking was a way to try to reconnect with him, she reached out to those that both, that knew both of them in high school. So former classmates and friends of theirs, um, some, you know, that she might've lost touch with after they had graduated, but who Christine once again tried to regain a camaraderie with after he died. Some may say she was trying to forget Jim, but, you know, I think by going to and 
you know, spending time with people who knew both of them. She was trying to hold on to those memories of him. That's just my opinion or thoughts. But, you know, I can definitely see someone who has such a strong and, you know, passionate bond to someone that that might be something they were trying to do. But it was through interacting with these friends that she met another man named Mitch. Now, Lynn, Christine's mother, very understandably did not think much of Mitch. He was controlling and violent. So as any loved one of someone in an abusive relationship would do, Lynn was concerned. She would tell her daughter, quote, this is not the guy for you, end quote. But reading the description of those interactions, it almost seemed like it was a tug of war. And Christine would just kind of dig her heels in harder and fight harder each time that she felt her mother was tugging on that rope. So as a kind of compromise, Christine would spend many of her weekends with Mitch, but the time during the week was spent with her mother, Lynn. But soon, though, Christine found that she was pregnant, and she hoped, as so many people in the past have, that by bringing a new life into the world together, that it would help their relationship. It didn't then, you know, as we know, it doesn't usually happen like that. When a child's born, it doesn't usually bring p- people closer together, but rather it adds more stress onto an already stressful relationship. Then they had a second child. And instead of Mitch seeing that his life should be devoted to his children and providing them with the best possible care and life growing up, he definitely did not calm down. Instead of trying to become more of a compassionate and caring father to his children and a loving partner to a significant other, He wanted to dominate them, so things only got worse. And for reasons of self-protection, Mitch was never convicted for anything regarding this, so in terms where I'm discussing domestic violence or acts that he may have taken against Christine or anyone else for that matter, they are alleged So this is just what we have heard about the relationship between Mitch and Christine. Eventually, though, he did start pretty much leaving bruises and a black eye on her. And you can't adequately hide a black eye. So he was getting more brazen and getting more open with some of the things that he was doing. And Christine, in doing what she felt she had to do to make sure her kids grew up in a better environment, she left. Now, leaving is easier said than done when in a relationship that involves domestic violence. That's usually when things will happen 
that will be most detrimental um, to the person leaving. That is the most dangerous time. But Christine was strong and she had this will that she knew she had to take care of her children. And so she did leave. And that's a major step. And it shows just how much she wanted to get her children out of a toxic environment and move them into a place where she could provide them love and support and her mother, you could be with them as well to help provide that support too. And in everything that I've seen and read about Lynn Dodenoff, she was avidly devoted to her family. To look a little more at types of relationships that can be toxic, um, and in specifically using a case that one partner is violent towards the other, I, just from observation, I've seen that a lot of people will be like, just, well, why doesn't she leave? Or why doesn't he leave? And, you know, speaking for myself from being very lucky and having a very strong and supportive family, I know it can be hard for some people to understand. So looking at this situation, some may be questioning why she had the second child with Mitch or why she stayed as long as she did. I want to look at it as she had that strength to recognize what was going on and that strength to move. Like I said, it's harder than it sounds because it's not always just about having the person that you love in your life. There's emotions of guilt because some people really do manipulate others to feel that they're the ones who committed the transgression, that they're the ones who committed the wrong. So sometimes there's guilt when leaving because the person leaving thinks they could have done more or that they did things in the past that angered their partner. And that's why they're finally having to end the relationship. But domestic violence is never justified. So, you know, again, I'm just kind of going by observations I've made. I don't have a degree or anything like that, but it can be difficult because of a lot of emotions that go through, go through you at the time. Now, if you have children, you also then worry about taking them away from their parent. And while at certain times, the person who is perpetrating the domestic violence may not initially hurt any children involved in the, you know, in the relationship. Um, you never know when that might change. And most likely it will. So Christine here decided to get out earlier um, rather than keep her children in that environment. Children also see what's going on and that just gives them a skewed vision of what a relationship should be like. So to get children out sooner than later, whenever possible, is, you know, really optimal. There could also be feelings of trying to change the person 
that they meet and fall in love with someone. And usually at the beginning, things are very nice and perfect. And it's not until the relationship moves further and further along that sometimes the true colors start to show. And that leads to, you know, some of the things that happen with domestic violence, where it begins with isolating someone from friends and family and taking over complete control. And that includes emotionally and financially, because that's the other side of the coin is when someone leaves a relationship like this, they usually are not on a strong financial um, foundation. Even if both members of the family, adult members of the family were working, that's no guarantee that they would be bringing in enough individually once they left to try to you know, get a new apartment or rent a small home or just any of those things that are really needed by people when they are trying to get out of a domestic violence relationship. Thankfully, Christine did have her mother. And so she knew that she would be able to move in with her to try to start over anew. But if any adult daughters have tried to live with their mother before, it can sometimes be a little hair-raising, I guess, is a way to describe it. Um, I know personally when I moved back down to Sussex County from Newcastle County in Delaware, and we were waiting on some things. We stayed with my parents for a little while, and... Yeah, I took exactly after my mother. So they were two very, in, or very strong, independent opinions that were sharing a kitchen, sharing a living room. Oh, and it, it could be very, very difficult at times. But, you know, as daughters, I think a lot of times we take after our mothers. So it's like the same personality clashing um, when adult children especially when they have their own children, are trying to live within the same home. Now, Christine's mother lived in Camden, Delaware. Now, Camden is kind of in the middle of the state, and it's probably about as close to the middle as you can get. Um, it's close to Dover, which is the state capital of Delaware, and there are a lot of historical locations, you know, in this area. So as a town itself, though, it's not incredibly huge at all. There's only about, um, at least at the 2020 census, census um, a little over 3,700 people. So it's only 3.75 square miles. You know, so again, it's it's not incredibly huge. So like if I'm giving um, general directions to Camden, I'll give directions to Dover because that's really you know, what you're looking for. Um, and it's just in that general area. And unless you really need to get into the town itself and not just see something from the highway, you know, it's usually a town that you would just pass as you're driving through the state of Delaware. 
Now, one morning in the fall of 2007, Lynn and Christine did have a fight. And it was this fight that kind of took things over the edge. And it was something that really was mundane when it comes to the face of things. It was regarding a grocery bill. And it's sometimes those everyday things that can push two people apart if there's already turmoil you know, existing within that relationship. So again, just speculation. Odds are it was not just this grocery bill that took things over the edge, but probably just little things that had added up in the short period of time that Christine had moved back in to her mother. So Christine, being an adult, left. And one of the last things Lynn recalls is seeing her daughter hold her child's, so Lynn's grandchild's hand, as they walked away. And it had been two weeks approximately after Christine walked out that Lynn received a call from somebody that her daughter had been staying with. This was a man named Clarence, also known as Junior Jackson. And he was saying that Christine had disappeared. Now, Lynn, I would have to think, would have had the reaction that many people would have. You know, like, what do you mean missing? And asking you know, questions to try to determine why this person that you didn't know was telling you that your daughter was missing. So Junior had said that they had looked for her, meaning Tia and him, along with another roommate. See, Christine had moved in with her best friend, Tia. Whenever I use the term best friend for Tia, it's going to be in very strong air quotes. But to continue with what Junior Jackson had said, Junior, Tia Johnson, and Justin Haydell had all been trying to find Christine. These three adults, even though Justin at the time was 17, he was still close to becoming an adult, lived at this home. Justin was Tia's cousin and was originally from Texas. Now, the police did come to investigate, but as Christine was an adult, she could technically go missing on her own. Now, her two children that she had with Mitch, they were with her at the time that she was living at Tia's home. So that adds a layer to a missing persons case. Would a young mother who seemed devoted to her children abandon them? So this is a question that had to remain in the forefront of the investigation. Law enforcement did go to the home of Tia Jackson, I'm sorry, Tia Johnson, Junior Jackson, and Justin Haydell. Now, Tia acted like any concerned friend would. She said that she had left the home for a while to run some errands, but when she came out, came back, 
she found that Christine's two children were there, but Christine was not. Now, she didn't believe that Christine would leave her children unattended. She thought that she would stay there with, and since there wasn't anybody to watch them, she felt that there was something wrong as the children were only two and four years of age at that time. So she started to look around the inside and outside of the house when she spotted her cousin and boyfriend coming out of the woods. The police did turn their questioning to the men and they said that they didn't know where Christine had gone and that they had also looked along the farmhouse and the grounds. But, you know, nothing looked like there had been any violence that took place in any place that they could see. So Tia herself did decide to look around the home as well and said that she found a note from Christine and the note was pretty much a thank you note for letting them all stay with Tia. While it did not say it was a goodbye letter, it could be something that was construed as a goodbye letter. But by goodbye doesn't mean that she was moving to another location or could it be something more sinister, especially, you know, as she left the children behind, could it be something that she might be thinking of doing herself to herself? Another factor in how this case was approached is the fact that Christine did not have a vehicle. Now, while there is some public transit in many of the cities around the area, it's nowhere near as huge with the number of different options, as well as multiple trains or buses to take people around a city. So without having a vehicle, it's not like Christine could just, you know, hop in a car and go anywhere she wanted. She would have had to plan, you know, where to go, what bus to try to catch, how to get that bus to another location, to another location, to another one until she was finally able to get to a place that she felt she was far away. Now, this is only if it was something that she was thinking of doing in terms of leaving everybody. But it would be fairly difficult for her to have gotten any substantial distance using um, public transportation, even if there was any at all that she could get through. As we don't always see a good time frame when someone goes missing, this case actually did have a pretty clear time frame to within a few hours of you know when she probably went missing. It had probably been about three hours, and Tia, Jr., and Justin were all extremely cooperative. You know, if... All of the information was to be believed. That meant that there was only about two and a half to three hours for, you know, a murder to take place, if that's truly what happened, for any cleanup to begin, and then for disposal of the body. And then, you know, the police get the phone call. So this seemed to be very efficient when looking at Christine's disappearance. And while... You know, 
many people would hate to go straight to wondering if the person was still alive. Unfortunately, in this case, from the very beginning, there was pretty good evidence to feel that Christine had not just left willingly. She had the two babies to think of, and it's not something that she would have been known to do. She was always known as being a very good mother. But the three people that she lived with acted genuinely concerned. So with police discussing the case with them and questioning the three roommates, it didn't really seem like they were involved initially. Yes, police will always keep people on their radar, but they were being very, very cooperative. But the three roommates had a very um, good suspect as someone that they could lead the police to and tell them about, and that was Mitch, Christine's ex-boyfriend and father of her two children. So with Christine being reported so quickly after her disappearance and with Mitch being a prime suspect or contender to be a suspect. Again, have to sometimes watch my wording, but as a contender to be a suspect, you know, it could have very quickly been solved if Mitch didn't have an alibi. And while Mitch himself was not, let's just say, the greatest of human beings, in my opinion, he still did provide police with some information. And that was information regarding a diary that he turned over to the police. Okay, everybody, um, with that, I think I'm going to stop today. Um, I know that this episode would probably end up being about an hour and a half total. And while I'd like to be able to, you know, be able to go through the whole thing today, I think right now is a good place to stop for me. Um, I appreciate your understanding. It's just doing this podcast is very important to me as, you know, a goal is to look at why things happen and try to learn from them. So over this past week, it's, that's really been forced home even stronger. You know, I, I want to take a look at cases and find out what went wrong Was there anything that could have been done to prevent certain things? And in Christine, we see things that we so often see in cases where women are isolated from their family and abused emotionally, mentally, and physically. Even though with this case, we'll find that there's different turns that lead us away from the person that most people would feel is the prime suspect. So I appreciate your patience. You know, again, um, I should, I'll try to have this finished as soon as I can, but I can't really guarantee a time frame. Um, you know, hopefully within a two week period, but just kind of as a possibility, I I'll say it could be up to three weeks. Um, so I appreciate you know, again, everybody's understanding um, as you know, my family and I are trying to get through. You know, some sometimes that'll be pretty rough over um, the next week. 
If you can share, comment, or rate the podcast, I greatly appreciate it as that does move it up in the algorithm for, you know, what people search for and bringing Danger on Delmarva up as um, part of a suggestion or some of the suggestions they bring up. If you do want to take a look at my Facebook or Twitter, those are linked, even though admittedly, I grew up without social media, so social media is not the biggest platform that I tend to to be on all the time. But there will be updates to some stories there. Um, so you can always check out information and messages there. And lastly, though, while it's not something I ever expected to be asking about or talking about, on this podcast, there will be a link to a GoFundMe to help offset um, funeral expenses for my brother, George. Um, I hope everybody you know, take some time this week and tell your loved ones that you love them. Give them a hug if they're nearby. Take advantage of FaceTime or Skype or any of the other services where you can talk to a loved one and see them face-to-face, even if they live a long way away. Just take the time to enjoy life and enjoy those around you, because truly we never know when in, in just an instant everything that we've had just seems to go away in a blink of an eye when he's been here my whole life and is no longer here. It's hard to imagine life without this silly, <laughs> this, some of the silly things he did. Um, but again, just take some time to spend with those you love. I'll talk to you as soon as I can. Bye.